You're listening to Think Digital Futures. My name is Shane Anderson, and this is Kathleen Patrick. She's, well, hard to describe. Titles, bloody hell. Oh, let's go with science communicator and geologist. That'll do. Kathleen is in Perth, and I am in Sydney. So we're chatting over Skype about a trip that she took in 2016 to Antarctica. Like most sea voyages south, it all began in a town called Ushuaia in Argentina. Yep, South America. Ushuaia is a, a massive tourist step-off point for Antarctica. We all rendezvoused down there and we had a, a day or so in town. Our hotel was kind of up the hill, so uh, if you had a, a window that was pointing the right way, you could actually see the ship sitting down in the harbour and it was tiny compared to the other ships that were sitting around it. We just went, oh, we are in a little tin can. <laughs> We, in this case, is Kathleen and 78 other women working in STEM industries, that is, science, technology, engineering, medicine and maths, who are setting off for a two-week trip to Antarctica. The first part of the sea voyage is the notorious Drake's Passage. You can get Drake Lake, which is absolutely flat, or it can be 18-metre kind of swells. Which one did you get? (laughs) We got Drake Lake, and, you know, while there was a small part of me going, oh, it'd be nice to just see how scary it is, I was also quite thankful. From there, it's a couple of days to reach the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Kathleen says there was a bottle of wine in it for the first person to spot an iceberg. She didn't win. And the moment we saw that first iceberg, that was the, the clincher. Yep, we're, <laughs> we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, we are most definitely heading towards somewhere that basically most of us had never been. And the first bit of land that was jutting up was the, 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 the South Shetland Islands. And um, they're pretty striking. There's some big columns of basalt. And, you know, as a, as a rock nerd, I could, in the distance, I, a, I know what that rocks are, what those rocks are, I can tell, I can tell. And as we got closer, it was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty astounding, pretty exciting. So Kathleen was heading to Antarctica for a project called Homeward Bound, which sends a ship full of women in STEM industries to Antarctica to help inspire and network the next crop of leaders in their fields. It's a program designed to address one of the lingering questions hanging over basically every industry concerned with the future. Why aren't there more women in STEM? And frankly, this question is a little tired. We'll come back to our Skype journey to Antarctica in a bit. But first, I want to ask not what women can do to get into STEM, but what STEM industries should be doing for women and why the lack of gender, race and class diversity is a symptom of far bigger problems in these industries. It's time for some STEMinism. So STEMinism is a word I just made up, but we all know by now that science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine are dominated by men, particularly white men. I don't need to give you the stats, they aren't that hard to find on your own. 
But I'm sick of hearing about how the lack of women in STEM could be fixed if we just made subjects like maths more attractive to women, as if all you need to do is lay Idris Elba out as bait, and we'll all be fooled into getting an engineering degree. Then there's the biological argument which suggests that women are just naturally wired to prefer to sit on the couch, watch the notebook and cry over a tub of ice cream, because that's what our cave women ancestors did with rocks or whatever. These are stupid and they're easy to refute. But then there's the more insidious arguments, like the one that says that we can reach parity if we women just put our heads down and try harder. We should be more confident, we should look more professional, we should become a go-getter. Put in the hours and you'll be recognised for your efforts. Lean in. Tell me, what are the three biggest mistakes women make in the work- workplace? Mm. Not believing in themselves and sitting at the table, side of the room. Sitting inside the room. That's right. Yes, this um, is Sheryl Sandberg, the current chief of operations of one of the biggest companies in the world, Facebook. She's talking to Oprah about her theory, lean in. It's a topic of her book, Lean In, Women Work and the Will to Lead, and the catalyst for a global community dedicated to helping women achieve their ambitions. And the problem is this. Women are not making it to the top of any profession anywhere in the world. How do we change these numbers at the top? How do we make this different? We've got to get women to sit at the table. It's the kind of mentality that has probably helped millions of women steal themselves before they walk into an intimidating meeting. But as a philosophy, there's a problem. You can lean in as much as you want, but if your organisation doesn't have proper caring policies, if they don't give women study leave, if they don't uh, pay women in an equitable way to men, then women will never advance. This is Meredith Nash, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Tasmania. Lean in is an inspiring mantra, but that's just it. It's self-help, not change. It's a sort of form of feminism, and I'm here I'm using feminism in inverted commas, where we're sort of talking about a very sort of cynical version of feminism in which women are told that they're empowered if they just become more confident, when in fact all those efforts are only individual. And when this is only individual, it's less a global feminist movement and more a network of people out for their own gain. This isn't to attack Sheryl Sandberg personally. With a net worth somewhere between $25 million and a billion dollars, it's clear that leaning in has worked for her. But it's hard to say whether this strategy has worked for other women employees at her own workplace. There's only one other woman who leaned into a spot on the Facebook board. And that's not the only ceiling people hit in tech industries. Only one member of the Facebook board isn't white. Is everyone else just not trying hard enough? When it comes to banishing the myths around discrimination in the workplace, we don't have to look far from Sandberg. She comes from the tech industry, and nowhere feels the barriers of sexism more keenly than the STEM fields. Staff at Google are walking off the job today. It is happening all across this Google Earth. They're protesting the company's treatment of women and they're demanding big changes. Recently, Google staff of all genders went on strike to protest the ongoing discrimination against women in the workplace. I've had to hear about and watch so many people leave the company after experiencing mistreatment and harassment 
and I've seen women be unable to get promotion until they wither and leave. Science in particular teaches scientists that it's a rational, objective discipline, that if you are a good scientist, you will advance. Now, we know the fact is that women work very hard. Women are doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing, and the fact is they're still not advancing. And it's even more difficult if you're a woman of color or if you're a woman who identifies as queer, uh, because these are actually additional barriers. This is actually Meredith's main area of research. She's looking at why women struggle to get ahead in science. The bad news is there's a whole host of reasons. STEM fields are male-dominated, so there are these very masculinist models of management and sort of old boys clubs where men tend to promote men. Men tend to look to other men for advice and for strategy building, and so that can be really detrimental to a woman's career. We've heard of all these problems. They're the kind of thing that Sandberg writes about. They're all beasts that you can name. You can look around a room and plainly see the gender disparity. You can at least try to fight this. Even if you manage to keep yourself afloat against these disadvantages, there's still an undertow that drags women back down. Invisible barriers, ones that you can't lean into. And it gets even tougher when you hit those intersections, when you're non-binary, from a diverse background, from the LGBTQI community, or a person with a disability. Discrimination here happens in more subtle ways. Like when we found out earlier this year that Amazon's recruitment process was automatically filtering out CVs with women's names on them. And another huge unconscious barrier is citation bias. In academia, citations are everything. Lots of citations is a, is a mark of status and rank in academia. Meredith says that women are less likely to cite themselves. Which means that their citation numbers are lower. And also men are less likely to cite women's research. It, I feel like it's a rare occasion when a woman walks in and someone says, oh, you're a woman, you can't work here. It's operating a lot more subtle than that. Yes, that is absolutely true. And, and it is exactly that subtlety that is the problem. This is Karen O'Connell, senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, from the Faculty of Law. Karen deals mostly with sex discrimination law. She wants to see how we can use the legal system to make these invisible barriers, well, visible. We've had laws for years that are addressing sex discrimination and are trying to achieve equality. But when the sorts of issues you're dealing with do have that level of subtlety, then they're not very useful. Karen's experienced male-dominated workplaces. She dealt with it firsthand herself when she took over her father's business. A manufacturing business. And in some ways that was a very positive experience because I did feel as if there are now many men in workplaces, even if they are male-dominated, that already have had experiences of treating women as equals, of respecting and listening to women as sources of authority, and they have absolutely no problem with that. Karen noticed that the behaviours of people around her changed. It wasn't always for the worse, but they still changed. Karen always knew she was in a space that didn't have her in mind. And it's the same across all STEM industries. When you picture an engineer or a physicist, what comes to mind? 
there has been a long history of a type of work being associated with men. That's very common in the STEM industries. Even when you're studying the subjects, the people who have traditionally been most successful and have made their mark have been men. That's not to say that historically there wasn't women in these industries. There were plenty. We just don't acknowledge their achievements. Take a look at the HSC syllabus for physics. The curriculum was recently revamped, and it made news this year for failing to mention the achievements of any female physicists, only highlighting the achievements of men. And that's not to say there haven't been significant contributions from women in physics. This is the field that Marie Curie worked in, after all. But just that this invisible discrimination had worked its magic. Their presence had been erased. And this happens so subtly, it's hard to do anything about it. So how can you prove it's actually happening? Legally, your standard recourse is to take out a sex discrimination case. These started becoming popular around the 1980s and 1990s. Back then, it was usually based around this idea of the hostile work environment, which 30 years ago was a little easier to spot. There was pornography on the walls where women were clearly given different jobs to men, um, where the sort of sexualization or denigration of women was very blatant and obvious. One of the classic cases in this area was a young woman apprentice who was working at a mine, at Mount Isa Mines, um, and not only was she, you know, treated in ways that were obviously hostile, she was given jobs to do like washing the bolts and then there was very sort of sexual kind of material around. So it was just very blatant and obvious. Nowadays, Karen says that attitudes have mostly changed, at least on the outside. To a large degree, the sort of blatant, obvious sexism, um, most people know now that that's unacceptable. So we're looking now at what lay underneath that. And as many of us have experienced, a workplace doesn't need to have porn on the walls to still be felt as hostile. But it's a lot harder to tell your boss that every time you speak out in a meeting you're interrupted, or that your grants never seem to get funded, or that you keep getting given projects way under your skill set. This is called second-generation discrimination. It's the evolution of the hostile work environment. And Karen has felt this herself. But in her experience, the hostile environment wasn't the family manufacturing business that she'd grown up around. In some ways, when I first stepped into a professional life as a lawyer, that felt more hostile to me. But that's a kind of class issue, which we would have to talk about on another day. But I do think that we're in the process of transforming our industries. It's just that some of them, it's happening so slowly. And the women who first step into them or first try to really succeed or flourish in some of our STEM industries, you know, it could feel a bit like just lambs to the slaughter. What what would your advice be to a woman in one of these situations who is thinking, is this just me or is something going wrong here? Often these factors that create, the more subtle factors that create inequality are also invisible to women in the sense that they may never have articulated them. But if you sit in a group of women and raise some of these issues, you get this immediate response. So I would say to women who are feeling particularly stressed and stretched and exhausted, just to ask themselves how much they're doing at work that they may not have to do. Yeah, and I feel as well, like, women who do speak out can very easily get labelled traits 
that have a gendered element to them. Mm. So speaking out would make you nagging. Yes. <laughs> well, this is something I call it cross hatching. It's like there are so many gendered lines that you're not supposed to cross. Um, and if you go too far one way, you hit one line, and too far the other way, you hit another line. And some of these are really tricky, and that is one of them, the authority lines. So for women, if they don't speak up enough, they're seen as typical women who are kind of submissive and not authoritative. And then if they speak up but they are considered to have spoken up too much, they're seen as, as nagging or as shrill. And these are the lines that are exactly the sorts of thing that I'm talking about. So I would always still encourage women to speak up wherever they feel that it's safe enough to do so. So you can lean in, you can be more confident, you can speak up in meetings, and there's a pretty good chance that you might get somewhere. But for real, systemic, lasting change, we need to collectively get together and challenge the ways that STEM industries run. They do say that change starts from within, but in this case, it might also start in Antarctica. My, my call to most people is that you really you need to unite. This is Kathleen again, the geologist who went to Antarctica. It might not be a union that's, that's best for you. Maybe it's a professional association that you can grab or it's a staff association or these other things. But, you know, united we, we stand, divided we fall. And you remember Meredith, the sociologist from the University of Tasmania. They both went on the homeward bound trip down south in 2016. Yeah, what was it? What was it like down there? What was what was it like being in Antarctica? I mean, it's interesting. I've been asked this question so many times, and I never can come up with the words to describe that experience. I mean, just the. I mean, Antarctica is sort of always described as the harshest climate. We had some of the most beautiful sunny days hanging out with penguins, sitting in snow, this like pristine, these pristine, beautiful landscapes. And it was just like, you feel like it's such a privilege to be there. Meredith went as a participant, but also as a researcher. She wanted to see just how projects like this could inspire change. It wasn't just about the voyage to the remotest parts of the earth. The idea was about helping women overcome barriers in STEM, and the starting point was actually having conversations with other women who are quite literally in the same boat. And so when we're on board, we talked a lot about, you know, what it means to be leadership, but it's also really about your own leadership journey. And the program is not about just throwing content at women and, and telling them what they need to do in order to be a good leader. It's what are your existing skills? What are you good at? What's your context? Like, what's your organizational context? And doing lots of critical reflective work around how you can build your capacities in certain areas, figuring out what your goals are at work, at home, and then trying to make a strategy around achieving your goals. You know, making you know, we talk about strategy and organizations all the time, but it's very rare to have someone actually help you make a strategy map, for example. I guess critics would look at women's only leadership programs and question why women are getting special treatment. Look, and I think it's, I mean, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a criticism that comes up a lot. And I would say that the thing is that women in STEM, but also women generally, have very specific barriers when it comes to advancing uh, in an organization. And in order for women to get a sense of why it is that they may not be advancing, they need to be in groups with other women where it's safe to talk about their experiences. 
all the research shows that women's leadership programs are essential specifically because they allow women to get outside of their organizations, get away from their context, their everyday context, come together in a different space and talk about what it's like to be a woman working in whatever field. It's projects like these that foster a sense of togetherness that can help. And the fact that this all happens in Antarctica sweetens the deal. Homeward Bound isn't going to single-handedly stop workplace discrimination in its tracks. It needs to be combined with serious structural change. Participants like Kathleen are pretty aware of that. The one thing that it, it can't help necessarily is opening the doors to the leadership room, but it at least gets the, the issue out there. Um, you know, So there's a fair amount of social media and articles and visibility from the the, the participants as well as the, the organisers of the, the project to, to, yeah, just basically start the conversation, that one, that great old cliche. There is another downside, though. It's freaking expensive. The researchers who go mostly crowdfund for the money, a lot of scientists who did this said that this act gave them confidence and it helped teach them to get out there. But it's still a significant financial barrier. But Homeward Bound shows us that perhaps what Steminism is really about is visibility. Challenging perceptions of male-dominated workplaces by bringing women forward. It's not about one person pushing through barriers, but everyone, men included, making space for more diversity. It's about understanding the ways STEM industries are geared towards men, in obvious but also more subtle ways. And for Meredith and Kathleen, it's also about sledding with penguins. But I do have one last question because I was talking to Meredith about the trip to Antarctica and she did mention you guys went sledding. <laughs> Tobumming. <laughs> Tobogganing. <laughs> so tobumming on our butts. We uh, we didn't have sleds, so we just uh, slid down. <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of hills where there was quite a good slope on them. And, you know, we're all wearing kind of ski pants and, you know, kind of plasticky, slippery pants. There was one one landing at, I think it was Charlotte Bay, where a couple of us went, ooh, let's do this. And we kind of slid down and we made these little ruts. And by the, uh, the end of the afternoon, literally, there was a whole stream of people tobumming down and running up and tobumming down and running back up. And there's a, a classic photo that I actually took from when I was back on the Zodiac heading back towards the ship where it looks a bit like lemmings, <laughs> kind of like coming down the mountain and there's this mob of penguins and a seal down right down the bottom staring up at the humans just going, what the heck is going on up there? Thanks for tuning in to Think Digital Futures. As always, this show is supported by 2SER and the University of Technology, Sydney. 2SER sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and shout out to elders of this land, past, present and future. Thank you to Kathleen Patrick, Meredith Nash and Karen O'Connell for your help with this episode. If you do want to find out more information about the show, head to 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. But since I've got you here, you should probably also subscribe to our feed. And by probably, I mean do it now. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.